0: It's Thursday, April 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Senator Bernie Sanders has dropped out of the race for the 2020 Democratic nomination for president. With no real pathway to overtake Joe Biden in the delegate count, Sanders is suspending the campaign, but still staying on the ballot to get as many delegates as possible to influence the party platform at the convention. Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill, joins us for more on Bernie ending his run. Next, the US is eyeing a second coronavirus outbreak in China. In the past few days, officials have noted an emergence of new cases, particularly in asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic individuals. The administration is closely monitoring how China handles this next wave to better understand what we could expect later this year when we too could possibly see a second outbreak. Aaron Banco, national security reporter at the Daily Beast, joins us for how we are keeping an eye on China. Finally, in this time of coronavirus, telemedicine is having a moment. It was once a hard sell to get people to see a doctor over the phone or a computer screen, but now some companies can't keep up with demand. Wait times have increased on some of these services, and it is leading for them to hire more doctors to help you quicker. Harmy Olson, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the rise of telemedicine. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: So while we are winning the ideological battle, and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful.
0: Joining us now is Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Thank you for having me. So some updates to the 2020 race, the Democratic race for president Bernie Sanders has now dropped out of the race. It was something that we were expecting, obviously, because his pathway to the nomination did not look good. But he was sticking in for a while. So he spoke to some of his campaign today. He had a video address that he made and told everybody that he was getting out. What do we know about what he said today?
2: So essentially what he said today was he did not see a path forward with the nomination citing Biden's insurmountable lead. However, Bernie Sanders did really speak to this movement he's created and essentially said, look, I understand that we need to pressure the Democratic establishment to pay attention to issues that we care about, whether it's income equality or Medicare for all. So he said he would stay on the ballot in the remaining primaries that are left and try to amass as many delegates as possible possible ahead of the Democratic National Convention. So at that gathering, the convention, he and the progressives in the room will be able to pressure the party to maybe embrace or at least consider a lot of these platforms. The problem is we know that former Vice President Biden has said that he's not willing to embrace Medicare for all; that he would rather maybe build upon Obamacare and improve that system. So there definitely could be some tension ahead. But the question is, how does Joe Biden go about unifying the progressives and the centrists in the? Democratic Party. And what role does Bernie Sanders play in
0: that? you got to kind of give it to Bernie Sanders. He never backs down from a fight. And he's always been this disruptor. I mean, it was the disruptor the last time when they went to the convention with Hillary. So who knows how crazy it would get at the convention, especially considering they're saying they might do a a virtual convention and all that stuff. It's very much in flux what happens there. So as you mentioned, he did say he was going to stay on the ballot to bolster his progressive platform. But he didn't really also endorse Joe Biden. He said he expects him to be the nominee and all that stuff, but he didn't full out come out and endorse him. No,
2: he did not. Very much of a contrast to what you've seen a number of the other candidates in the Democratic race this primary cycle to what they've done. You saw Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg essentially just hours or days after they dropped out of the race, they were endorsing Joe Biden. Mike Bloomberg, when he dropped out of the race in his concession speech, he endorsed Joe Biden. You didn't see that with Bernie Sanders. And, you know, I think the relationship that Biden and Sanders has does seem to be slightly better maybe than the relationship that Sanders had with Hillary Clinton. So that could lead to some differences. However, I think this speaks to the division in the party right now and where, you know, a lot of Sanders' progressive supporters are. There's a lot of skepticism towards Biden in that wing of the party. And there's also some skepticism, I would say, among more moderate Democrats, more moderate Democrats that were supportive of Hillary Clinton in 2016, who saw Bernie Sanders as a spoiler of source in her general election against Donald Trump.
0: Ever since President Obama left the office, the Democratic Party has been in flux with how far left they should go. Should they go all the way to the progressive side? Are they going to continue to be moderate? Bernie Sanders has constantly said he's winning the ideological debate. But basically, after South Carolina, all of the nominating contests had gone very moderate. They all went for Joe Biden. And while Bernie Sanders has made a big impact on the party platform with things like Medicare for all for a free public college tuition and all that. Is the party more moderate this time around? I mean, can we say that just that's the way all the voting contests were going?
2: I think the party is split right now. I think you have to look at polls and then actual turnout in voting. I think a major source of frustration for Bernie Sanders and his campaign was that in the polls, you saw him leading majorly among younger voters. However, those younger voters didn't seem to turn out enough in a way that would have put him over the edge, that would have given him a lead. So I think right now you are seeing that the party's more moderate voters, the more centrist voters are simply turning out more and that maybe the younger progressive voters that you saw turn up so much in the public opinion polling that they weren't turning out so much For Senator Sanders, Biden wasn't getting a lot of that support from that young vote in polls or even actual primaries. However, Senator Sanders at least was getting it in public opinion polling.
0: Joe Biden, for his part, seemingly already kind of moving on to the general election. He had already announced that he was taking steps to begin his search for a running mate. He committed to... Getting a woman as his vice president. So I know he's kind of going on that search. And I think he thanked Bernie Sanders and kind of made those inroads to his supporters. So we'll have to see how that bears out for him. Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you.
1: It is still not clear to this day the exact amount of people in China who have contracted the coronavirus and we're still not sure how many people have died. Basically, what officials in the U.S. are telling us is we can't really trust the data that's coming out of China at this moment in time.
0: Joining us now is Aaron Banco, national security reporter at The Daily Beast. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thanks for having me. You know, since this whole outbreak began... All eyes have been on China. That is where the outbreak first began in Wuhan, China. We've been looking at them for numbers as far as confirmed cases and death toll. We've been looking at them as far as how they reacted to all this, what they did, how they shut Wuhan down. And the eyes continue there because they're the first ones that went through this. And right now, the Trump administration is looking at them to see if a second coronavirus outbreak could be coming And this one is centering more around people that are asymptomatic. They're fearing that a rise in asymptomatic cases could trigger a second outbreak very soon or maybe later in the year. Erin, tell us a little bit about this. So
1: at the end of the day, from the officials we've been speaking to, it is still not clear to this day the exact amount of people in China who have contracted the coronavirus and we're still not sure how many people have died. Basically, what officials in the U.S. are telling us is we can't really trust the data that's coming out of China at this moment in time. So this sort of serves up all kinds of issues and problems for the Trump administration when they're trying to learn not only about how the first outbreak happened and how China handled that initial sort of round of patience and death, but also what it means going forward. What we've seen in China is small pool of people test positive for the coronavirus recently within the past week. And these individuals are, many of them, asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. And this is the sort of first indication that we're getting that there's this second wave of coronavirus cases that China may be experiencing over the next couple of weeks. And what the Trump administration is really trying to do is figure out how this new outbreak started and really get on the ground intel on exactly how many people have tested positive over the past few days and how the Chinese government is handling this all.
0: Yeah, and the concerns are there. We ourselves in the United States could possibly expect another round later this year. That's why Dr. Anthony Fauci said this could be a seasonal thing. It can maybe taper off in the summer months and then come back again when cold and flu season starts all over again. It, whether. It's a mutated version of COVID-19 or the same exact thing. It could still have its reemergence. And there's always been this thing about people that are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. That's the trickiest part. People can be shedding the virus and other people can get infected and not know it because the others aren't showing those symptoms. So what's happening is the Trump administration is leaning on the State Department for a lot of this stuff to keep an eye out for the second wave.
1: The Trump administration is looking at a couple of different agencies to try to gather as much information as possible on the ground from the Chinese government about this new small outbreak. But the State Department has really been leading the effort in not only trying to figure out from the consulate and embassies and representatives on the ground in China, just how many people have contracted the virus over the last week, but also how the Chinese government may or may not be spinning that kind of information. You know, we've had problems trying to get reliable data out of China for quite some time now on the coronavirus. And so they're trying to really get ahead of the game on this second wave and trying to dispel any sort of inaccurate information or talking points that appear in news reports or elsewhere and trying to sort of tamper down on that and track it all to make sure that the U.S. has a very clear understanding of what the actual data is, yes, but also how it's being distorted, if at all. And so the State Department is really relying on its partners across the world to help them and, of course, officials who are working within the department across the world as well was really a, a team effort within the State Department. Now, we also know that officials in the intelligence community are taking a really close look at this. But it's like you said, it's very important for the U.S. scientists and academics to really try to understand what led to this second wave in China and how to mitigate that here in the United States as the months go forward. The last thing the U.S. wants to do is to put out guidance that says, all right, we're all good. Everybody go back to work. And then we see this new second wave sooner than maybe we would have anticipated in the first place. So I think it's really trying to understand how to create our own policies and guidance around the coronavirus based off of very limited data that we're getting out of China.
0: The other thing that's happening as well with China is that some of the equipment that we're getting from there and other countries have been getting there. There's been reports of faulty equipment. I think things in spain and the netherlands britain was one of the latest countries to complain about these antibody test kits and other equipment that they were getting saying that they were faulty the fda has approved the use of k and n95 masks which are like the n95 masks but these are ones that are approved by china standards so that's just another concern is some of the equipment that we're getting from there as well
1: So what we know is the State Department is actually tracking some of those deliveries that have been flagged as faulty or not functioning correctly. And so what we know from some of the State Department cables that I reviewed is that China is pushing a new program whereby they will be delivering more and more supplies, increasingly so, but they put sort of new standards in place to ensure that on their end, the devices are working before they export them.
0: Aaron Banco, national security reporter at The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me. I mean, this was previously kind of a niche business. Very small minority of Americans actually use telehealth based on some of the surveys we've looked at, usually a single digit percentage. That number is now grown, of course, because people are being encouraged to stay away from
0: doctors clinics. Joining us now is Parmi Olson, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Parmi. My pleasure. One of the interesting things to note is all the other businesses that are doing well or kind of growing amid this whole coronavirus pandemic that we're dealing with. And one of the things that has seen an uptick is telemedicine. Obviously, the president has been mentioning it. They've expanded capacity, things like that. But there's a lot of companies that are doing it right now, TeleDoc, Health Inc., Doctors On Demand, and they're ramping up. They need a lot more doctors, and they're also expanding the services that they provide Parmi, tell us a little bit about that.
3: So uh, just as you described, these companies are ramping up their services. They have to because all of a sudden they are in so much demand. I mean, this was previously kind of a niche business. Very small minority of Americans actually use telehealth based on some of the surveys we've looked at, usually a single digit percentage. That number has now grown, of course, because people are being encouraged to stay away from doctors' clinics. But previously, these kinds of services weren't particularly popular. And now that the advice is to try and stay away from these physical locations and with a loosening of regulations around whether other video calling services can be used by doctors, people are increasingly looking to their phones, looking to their laptops to have a consultation with the doctor. This is becoming much more popular now.
0: In China, where this whole pandemic got started, officials are saying basically that this has sped up the shift by Chinese consumers to telemedicine by five years. This is how much it's grown in such a slow amount of time. Obviously, in the United States, a little slower to embrace there, but who knows what happens after this?
3: I mean, in China, telemedicine was already more popular probably than it is in Europe and also in the U.S. Just for example, JD Health has been going for a couple of years. They've got hundreds of doctors and they've had millions of consultations with people. And of course, that is ramped up in the COVID crisis. Now, actually, they've got this service that the virus is kind of waning over there in China. The latest thing that they've come out with is making their doctors available to Chinese speakers outside of China. So kind of these different services are trying to innovate on the fly. They have to work very quickly, put building out new services, hiring hundreds and hundreds of doctors who can work part time from their homes, to continue to have consultations with people.
0: In the meantime, you know, the demand is so high right now. A lot of these companies are experiencing some pretty big wait times. You spoke to a person who said she waited 22 hours to hold a video call with a doctor.
3: I spoke to a few different people who went through this. And one lady in Dallas, Texas, had to wait for 22 hours. She had actually been in hospital previously with pneumonia. It was actually suspected COVID-19. And she wanted to get some fluid for her nebulizer. But she didn't want to go to an emergency room or to a clinic because that's not really what you're supposed to do to try and pick up your prescription. So she said, I'll try and talk to a virtual doctor. But of course, she goes to two different services and they're just completely inundated. The first one, she was on hold for 22 hours. And then she talked to her insurer and her insurer actually suggested another service, which she tried, but she couldn't even register with this other service, which is a very well-known service and their online waiting room was full. And it was only because she, she thinks that she uh, kind of brought it up on Twitter that eventually someone from one of these companies was able to get um, a consultation. But um, there were a lot of people actually on Twitter who were complaining about not even being able to get through to these services.
0: I have not been able to try one of these just yet, but these doctors can do everything. They can provide prescriptions. They can um, direct you to a COVID-19 testing site if they need to.
3: I think it's kind of different with different services, but generally what they would do is primary care. So the same thing that your family doctor would be able to do, which is assess you, ask you questions, hear your answers, and kind of get an idea of a potential diagnosis or fill out a new prescription for you to go to the pharmacy. So when it comes to the secondary care, if you need to see a specialist or you need to get an x-ray, obviously that's something that you would need to go to a clinic or a hospital to do. But for actually a lot of the visits we go to the doctor for, the idea is that you don't really, in theory, need to be there in person. You could just get a lot of that done over the phone or through a video call.
0: One of the interesting things I noted in your article, too, is that for the doctors themselves that might be looking for work or other avenues, these companies are recruiting doctors who work in some non-essential areas right now, such as allergies, other specialized medicines, departments that could be shut down right now in some hospitals because of the influx of patients with covid-19 you can
3: imagine those probably aren't the only types of services that are deemed non-essential there would also be things like cosmetic surgery that sort of thing and you know, a lot of these kinds of doctors just can't really practice right now but if they are qualified to give primary care then they can sign up with some of these companies and they would upload their credentials and uh, and i heard from one of these companies as well that they were speeding up the process that normally takes a few weeks to validate the credentials of a doctor and get them on the system. They've now brought that down to days because the demand is so high to bring hundreds, even thousands of doctors onto this system. And these are doctors, as you mentioned, they work in allergy, they work in departments that are shut down, or they might just be home self-isolating because they've got a cough or they've got a cold and they haven't been tested, or maybe they've had the virus. And so they've got to be quarantined for a couple of weeks. And so they might as well use that time to see patients.
0: Parmi Olson, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.